this isn't the real Caesar's Palace, is it? What do you mean? Did Caesar live here? Um, no. I don't think so. I went to Vegas last weekend. Pretty crazy. Vegas, baby, Vegas! Gentlemen, welcome to Las Vegas. Why don't you give me half the money you were gonna bet? Then we'll go out back, I'll kick you in the nuts, and we'll call it a day. Some guys just can't handle Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 22 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. My name is Jeff, and I am pleased to be your guide for our podcast journey to what I like to think of as the best city on the planet, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. It's no secret that Las Vegas has a somewhat shady past. That can be attributed to the mob history of Las Vegas. There's a lot of myths and legends surrounding Las Vegas' association with the world of organized crime, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So, I turned to the experts. The Mob Museum is one of my favorite attractions in Las Vegas. Located downtown near the Fremont Street Experience, it's the definitive authority on mob history, not just in Las Vegas, but all across the U.S. and around the world. It's always at the top of my list of things to do when I'm in town, and it's always one of my top recommendations for people traveling to Vegas. Joining me for this episode of the podcast is Jeff Schumacher, the Senior Director of Content for the Mob Museum. Jeff and I talked about the humble beginnings of Las Vegas as a railway town. We talked about when the mob moved into Vegas and started taking over, as well as some of the colorful characters in Las Vegas' past. He also helped to separate fact from fiction when it comes to some of the stories floating around about the mob's involvement in the building of Las Vegas, and he shared info about some of the museum's very unique artifacts. Here's my conversation with the Mob Museum's Jeff Schumacher. So I guess my first question, and uh, I, I think it's a really good place to start, is when did the mob move into Las Vegas? Because there's this common misconception, I think, that the mob built Las Vegas. Yeah, that is that is a misconception because, you know, Las Vegas, uh, really, like a lot of places around the country, it started as a railroad town. Uh, railroad was built uh, in 1903. They started building a railroad between Salt Lake City, Utah, and Los Angeles, California. And the midway point uh, between those two cities was Las Vegas, which at the time had about 30 people living here. It was a there were a few ranches here. It was part of it was a branch of the old Spanish Trail. Um, it was used heavily by uh, Mormons traveling between Utah and. Uh, California, but it was very small and, and it didn't have a lot going for it except for one thing, water. And in those days, trains needed water. So Las Vegas became a division point on the railroad and the railroad uh, under the uh, leadership of William Andrews Clark, who was a mining mogul from uh, Montana and a state and a U.S. senator, he uh, built a town here. He, he plotted out lots and had an auction in 1905. People came from Southern California, from Utah, from elsewhere to buy lots very cheaply, and a town was born. Um, you know, you really need to fast forward to the 1940s before you see the mob, the traditional mob that we know from New York and Chicago and so forth. Uh, entering the scene in Las Vegas. So Las Vegas was a place, uh, it was small, but it was a, a, a real place before the mob got here. Now, you mentioned that Las Vegas was a stop on the railroad route for water, which I'm thinking probably comes as a bit of a shock to a lot of people considering Las Vegas is in the middle of the desert. Right. No, that's true. And, you know, um, in, the, in the 1800s, people traveling west, where they were, we know where they were going, right? They were going to California. And it started with the gold rush in 1849, of course, uh, but it continued uh, with the sort of economic opportunities that California promised, including farming and, and, uh, and mining and other, you know, just it's obviously its natural beauty and so forth. So people were traveling across this brutal desert uh, to get there. And you know, many people died. You know, you've seen the stories and watched the movies. 
uh, it was a really rough uh, trip. Well, one of the little oases along the way, it turned out for some people was Las Vegas. And it, it's strangely so, uh, you know, Las Vegas in, in Spanish means the meadows. And the reason is that we had springs bubbling out of the desert floor here all over the place and created pools and it created little creeks. And it was a great stopping off point for people trudging west to, to California. And um, so this water was, was available and it, this wasn't necessarily the case in other valleys around here. So it became a, an attractive place for the railroad. And now you mentioned that the mob really didn't make itself or become a presence in Las Vegas until the the mid 1930s. Was gambling already happening by that point in Las Vegas and and in Nevada? Yeah. So a big a big turning point for Las Vegas for Nevada uh, was the year 1931. Um, a couple of important things happened that year. First of all, that's when construction of Hoover Dam began. And Hoover Dam, this is during the Depression, remember, and people were looking for work. And Hoover Dam promised, you know, high paying jobs, good, steady work. So when construction, you know, before construction began and and when construction began, thousands of people flocked to, you know, the southern Nevada area hoping to work at the dam. Not Some people got jobs on the dam, some didn't. But the point is, there was a bit of a population uh, uh, growth for this area. And, uh, you know, not only would you, could you work on the dam, but then you provide the ancillary services, right? In some cases, vice services, like, you know, like gambling and drinking and, and so forth. So Las Vegas was really well positioned to take care of those, you know, those desires. Um, the other thing that happened in 1931 was the legalization of gambling in Nevada. Now, you might think that, you know, the legalization of gambling in 1931 would have been this automatic trigger for massive development of casinos in Reno and in Las Vegas. But it didn't really work that way. Um, The Depression was on. People didn't have a lot of money. And so the growth of the casino business in Nevada started very slowly. Things started to really pick up uh, in the late 30s, early 40s. And. There's a reason for that. Uh, one is uh, in the late 30s, you had the the election of a new mayor in Los Angeles. The previous mayor had been as corrupt as could be. He was allowing gambling to occur, illegal gambling to occur all over Southern California, and um, it was it was deemed to be a real problem. So a new mayor was elected, Fletcher Bowron. And Fletcher was decided to crack down on gambling across Southern California, and he did. And so what that ended up happening, uh, what that ended up prompting was for all these gambling operators to move to Las Vegas, where they could operate legally. And, you know, for example, a guy named Guy McAfee, uh, who had been a a big time uh, illegal gambling guy in Southern California, he moves to Las Vegas and he... uh, uh, operates one of the first uh, casinos on what becomes later becomes known as the Las Vegas Strip. Um, Other uh, California gamblers uh, arrived soon after, and you saw, they saw the potential, the early potential for Las Vegas to become something of a mecca for gambling. But things don't really take off with the mob uh, until really 1945. And in 1945, a group of uh, syndicate guys out of New York City, led by Meyer Lansky, who many people have heard of, Bugsy Siegel, who many people have heard of, uh, invest in the El Cortez Hotel Casino. El Cortez is downtown. Uh, It's still standing today, and it sort of celebrates its its mob past in, in a way that many casinos do not. But these guys invested in the El Cortez operated it for about a year, um, saw a profit off of that, uh, their efforts, promptly sold it, and then plowed that money into the construction of the Flamingo Hotel. And that's a whole story unto itself, which we can talk about if you'd like. Yeah, a- absolutely. And and it's interesting that you bring up the point that the El Cortez really celebrates 
its its mob ties and its mob history, whereas other hotels uh, don't so much, such as the Flamingo. And and you're going to be a lot more uh, accurate with, with this than I am. But Bugsy Siegel was quite heavily involved in the development of the Flamingo, correct? He was. Um, and But I, was, I would like to to sort of clarify that history because I think a lot of people are confused about it. Um, the Flamingo uh, was conceived uh, by a man named Billy Wilkerson and Billy Wilkerson is, it was a pretty big deal in his day. He was the publisher of the Hollywood reporter newspaper in, in Hollywood. And he also owned restaurants and nightclubs, really elegant, you know, very uh, uh, hip and cool restaurants on the Sunset Strip and so forth uh, in Southern California, very well known there. I had a lot of power in the, in the Hollywood and in the, in the movie industry because of his newspaper. And, but he also was a, a gambler and he loved to gamble. He was bad at it. <laughs> he lost a lot of money uh, gambling. So somebody at one point told him, you know, if you're going to be putting all this money into a casino, why don't you just own the place? So the money comes back to you. So he, <laughs> He decided um, in 1945 to buy a piece of property on the outskirts of Las Vegas and to start building the what he wanted to call the Flamingo Hotel or the Flamingo Club at that time. And um, so Wilkerson starts building the hotel. Uh, it was a much more modest uh, place under his vision, but very elegant. And it would have been, the, it w- it w- he envisioned it to be the, the type of place that would attract the Hollywood crowd that, you know, movie stars would come to Las Vegas who otherwise might not come because the casinos here at that time were pretty rustic and, you know, more old West style rather than elegant LA style. So he wanted the Flamingo to be elegant, upscale, uh, you know, good food, uh, good entertainment, all the things that they, the, the Hollywood crowd expected. So he started building the Flamingo and, because in part because he was such a, a, a problem gambler, he ran out of money, and he uh, you know he turned to all his friends. He got a loan from Howard Hughes. He got different kinds of money uh, from different people, but it wasn't enough. And ultimately, he um, turned to uh, the underworld uh, to help him out, and in the form of Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel and Frank Costello. And all of these really high-profile mob bosses from around the country to invest in the Flamingo. So it's still Billy Wilkerson's project at this point. But Meyer Lansky decides, you know what? We need somebody on the ground in Las Vegas. We need somebody to keep an eye on our investment. And so he sends Bugsy Siegel to Las Vegas to work alongside Wilkerson to see this thing to completion. Well, at first, Wilkerson and, and Siegel got along fine, but after a while, Siegel really took a liking to this project and really wanted it to be his baby. He, he in effect, pushed Billy Wilkerson out of the project, so much so that at one point, well, he threatened Wilkerson's life, and Wilkerson fled to Paris uh, for a period of time just to preserve his, you know, his life. <laughs> right. Um, so Siegel <laughs> takes over control of the flamingo and he begins spending like a drunken sailor i mean he really wants everything to be top notch i mean well above what billy wilkerson was planning and and he ends up instead of spending like the 1.5 million that billy wilkerson had planned to spend his uh bill starts reaching into the six million dollar range Wow. And that's a lot of money in 1946. I was going to say that if you brought that into present day dollars, that's got to be in the, the hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And, and this was all syndicate money. This was all money that he had uh, gotten from various investors, Meyer Lansky, Frank Costello, Lucky Luciano, all these guys um, were investing in the Flamingo and, and entrusting Bugsy to, to take care of this thing. Well, Bugsy um, is getting a lot of pressure. Okay, they've got all this money hanging out there, and the hotel isn't finished yet, but the casino is nearly finished. Bugsy makes a decision 
that they're going to go ahead and open the casino on December 26, 1946, the day after Christmas. And the reason is he wants to start generating revenue so he can start paying back some of these, uh, some of his syndicate friends. Well, it was a miscalculation on his part, and it's partly out of desperation. One of the problems was, you know, people did come to the Flamingo to gamble, but at the end of the evening, where did they go to stay? The hotel wasn't open, so they had to go down the road to the Last Frontier Hotel or the El Rancho Vegas or maybe the El Cortez, someplace like that, uh, to stay overnight. And one of the trends, you know, we still see this today at the, in Las Vegas is you tend to gamble and hang out in the hotel where you are staying. Right. Not that you don't visit the other ones, but in the end, you go back to your hotel. And so the Flamingo was 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 not doing as well as uh, Bugsy had hoped. So he ends up about two months after uh, the he opens, maybe a month and a half after he opens, he shuts it down. And the rationale is, He's going to finish the hotel rooms and then reopen with a flourish in the spring of 1947, which he does. He finishes the hotel rooms, reopens, and the Flamingo is doing much better. Actually, April, May, June of 1947, the Flamingo is starting to turn a profit. But by then, um, best information, you know, the best scenario we have for Bugsy Siegel's murder is that the syndicate had 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 enough of him that you know his really arrogant way of doing business at the flamingo his alienating of a lot of different people within the syndicate uh that they decided they could make more money and do better with the flamingo with bugsy out of the way so on june 20th 1947 siegel is sitting in his girlfriend virginia hills home in beverly hills california sitting on the couch in the evening reading the newspaper and suddenly bullets uh, are fired into the into the living room where he's sitting uh two of the nine shots hit him in the uh, hit one of them hit him right in the eye right in the actually in the bridge of his nose and another one uh, hit him and he was killed um 20 minutes after he his death uh we know that uh two men who uh were associated with this uh with lansky uh, walked into the Flamingo Hotel and said, uh, Bugsy's gone, we're in charge. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, so they ended up, those Gus Greenbaum and Mo Sedway uh, and a couple other guys took over the Flamingo, started running it at a great profit, and the Flamingo became a huge success, not only for the mob, uh, but for Las Vegas, and be, has become the iconic hotel that still stands on the Strip today. Now, to answer your original question, though, or to elaborate on it, the Flamingo, none of the original Flamingo buildings are still standing. I, I was uh, I was just going to ask that. So is it the same location? Yes. But none of the buildings are original? No original buildings whatsoever. And, and a very limited historical representation there. There's a, some kind of a garden area. I've been there. Some kind of a garden area outside the casino. You can go out, and in the midst of all these plants, there's a like a, um, a, a sign uh, on a post, and it recognizes Bugsy Siegel's contribution to the opening of the Flamingo. Yeah, I've uh, I've actually I've I've seen that plaque, and I've always been a little bit surprised that they don't do more to recognize that connection. I mean, I guess I can kind of understand that you don't necessarily want to be associated with the the activities <laughs> that those organizations may have been partaking in during that time. But at the same time, it's such common knowledge and the connection is so well known that it is surprising that there isn't more around the property uh, to to show the connection. Totally agree with you. I think it would actually work for them um, as it does for the El Cortez. Um, you know, I think that the Flamingo is a great, uh, there's a great case to be made for the Flamingo to, to honor its origins and to, you know, because I think, and it probably does fine, you know, financially now, but I mean this to, to build 
on that history, I think they could bring in a lot more people who just want to stay at the Flamingo because that was Bugsy's place, you know? Not to spend a whole uh, a whole ton of time just on the Flamingo, but because I think you could probably do an entire episode of this podcast just about the the mob history of the Flamingo, but uh, it's one of the properties with one of the, the higher profiles and the more commonly known connections. Um, one of the, the legends surrounding the Flamingo is that it was named in honor of Bugsy's girlfriend, Virginia Hill, in honor of her legs. Yeah, and you hear that a lot. Uh, it, it is not accurate, however, because uh, Bill, it was Billy Wilkerson who named it uh, well before Bugsy Siegel came on the scene. And one of the, one of the challenges as historians we have is that when, but you know, there, there are history books that don't even mention Billy Wilkerson that make it sound like, like Bugsy Siegel conceived this idea and for himself and, and then, and then made it happen. And, and with Virginia Hill at his side. And that's actually what it looks like in the movie Bugsy, uh, the 1990s movie with Warren Beatty and Annette Benning. I mean, you actually, there's a scene where Bugsy pulls off the highway headed to Las Vegas and he sees a big, uh, vast desert, and he's and he he believes this is the place where he's going to build the flamingo. The problem with that is he never did that, and and it was Billy Wilkerson who did that. And frankly, it would have been a better movie, not because uh, you know I'm, what do I know compared to a great screenwriter, right? But I think it's pretty interesting that Siegel really hijacked this project from someone else. I think that's even more indicative of a mob mindset. But what, who am I to say? <laughs> right. Um, so I guess, I mean, that brings up an interesting point. I mean, there's there's a lot of great movies about the mob and particularly the, the mob connection to to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Movies like Bugsy and movies like Casino, another another great classic. For sure. Do you find that uh, the visitors to the museum are maybe a little bit thrown off by the the differences between um, the movies and the real life stories. I mean, the, the story about the Flamingo and the Bugsy connection and everything is a, is a great example of that. But I also seem to recall that in Casino, I mean, there were obvious differences. They didn't use real names or real hotel names or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it, it did follow uh, a, a true story, correct? Yeah, you know, what's interesting about Casino is how how, how surprisingly accurate it is. <laughs> you know, it, it, um, uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, uh, you know, directed that movie and was, I know from people who worked on the movie that he and his screenwriter, Nick Pelleggi were really intending for it to be as accurate as reasonable. You know, I mean, when you're doing Hollywood movies and you want to wrap things up in two hours or three hours, it can be hard to and, and be perfectly accurate, but Casino is pretty darn close. And what it does is it depicts the story of the Chicago outfit taking over uh, the uh, Stardust Hotel and actually a couple of other hotels, too. But they focus on the Stardust, uh, the Stardust Hotel in the early 70s. And then uh, Lefty Rosenthal, the story, you know, he played he's played by Robert De Niro and, and his uh, uh, skimming of funds from the Stardust. And also his attempts to get, uh, you know, a gaming license, which are unsuccessful because of his uh, nefarious past. And then his sort of snubbing his nose at the authorities by putting, you know, having his own late night talk show. Right. <laughs> All this stuff is very accurate. It's exactly what happened. Now, was Casino the movie that um, that Frank Collada worked on? Yes. Uh, Frank Collada was a uh, an advisor on that film he had been uh he had worked for tony spilatro back in the day um and uh Collada not only was an advisor on the film but he acted in the film as well uh as a hitman which interestingly enough there's a great story associated with that um they were filming a scene about a hit uh they were these two mob guys were going to kill this other informant and and Collada is watching this play out, uh, and he's telling Martin Scorsese, "You got it all wrong. That's not that's not how it's done. That's not how it was done." And and Martin Scorsese is like, "Okay, so what's the, how do we make it right?" 
And so Collada is telling them, okay, you need to do this and then this and this. And at that point, Scorsese realized it was actually Collada who had done the actual hit <laughs> that was the basis for this scene in the show. So Scorsese's like, okay, well, why don't you just play the character, you know, and let's do this the way you want to do it. <laughs> and, so, and so Collada became this hitman in the movie, and you can see him in there uh, killing a guy next to a pool. And um, and according to Frank, it's now filmed the way it actually happened. Now, now, how anxious do you think the actor was who was <laughs> who was playing the victim <laughs> when he he realizes, oh, hell, this is the guy who did this in real life. You know, that's a that's a really good question. And I, one of the things about Frank is he's very open today about who he is and and what he's done uh, in the past. But at that time, he was just coming out of witness protection. And he was using a different name. Oh, okay. And I, it could very well be that the victim victim actor didn't know who he really was. That's just absolutely amazing. Um, are there other hotels and casinos in Las Vegas that have as strong of a mob connection as, say, the El Cortez or the Flamingo? Yeah, there, there are. Um, uh, an example of that would be the Tropicana Hotel. Um, Tropicana opened in 1957. Uh, it was a mob place through and through when it opened. And uh, famously, um, uh, Frank Costello, who was the uh, uh, one of the top mo- uh, mafia guys in New York City, was one of the big investors in, in the Tropicana. And in that same year, just like a month or two after the, the uh, uh, Tropicana opened, Costello was the was uh, walking in his apartment comp or walking in the lobby of his apartment complex in New York when a hitman came up and took a shot at him, and the shot uh, grazed the side of his head of Costello's head, created a lot of blood. The hitman thought he had been successful in killing Frank Collada as he had been assigned to do. I mean, sorry, Frank Costello as he had been assigned to do. However. It wasn't the case. Uh, Costello did not die. He was just bleeding a little bit, the and a flesh wound. And but uh, police came and the police wanted to know all about it. And Costello wasn't talking um, as to you know who he saw you know shoot at him or whatever. Um, but they they as as uh, Costello was being examined by a doctor, uh, he had taken his jacket off and the police were rifling through his pockets. And they came across a piece of paper. And this piece of paper contained a, a series of numbers. And after a lot of forensic accounting work, the police figured out that these numbers represented the skim, the percentage of the skim that was going to each individual or each organized crime group around the country that had invested in the Tropicana. And so it was like the first, like one of the first times when the mob's in, uh, deep involvement in Las Vegas was revealed. It's a national story, and it led to uh, the departure of several people from the from the Tropicana. Ironically, it didn't stop the mob's enroll, uh, ownership of the Trop, nor the skimming. <laughs> But uh, it did cause a little trouble at the time. Amazing that that a uh, something as stupid as a, a little piece of paper can bring down this this giant syndicate like that. Well, absolutely, and uh, and um, although it did, and you would think it would have brought it down completely, but it didn't. Uh, the uh, and, and, but the Tropicana continued, and and some of the original buildings uh, of the Tropicana still stand. Um, Later in the in the 1980s, uh, the Tropicana, of course, was the home of the Foley's Bergere show, uh, stage production. And uh, to oversee the skim at that time, uh, the syndicate brought in a guy named Joe Augusto. And Joe Augusto was uh, a front man. He was overseeing the skim, but they gave him a job. They made him the executive producer of Foley's Bergere. This is a guy who had no idea what dancing was about. He had no idea how to choreograph a show or anything. It didn't matter. All he was there to do was to oversee the skim so that the, the mob would get its money. But uh, ultimately he was caught and uh, exposed uh, and, uh, and was brought down in the eighties. So the trop's another one. 
Um, a lumber of the other ones, however, have uh, been torn down. You know, the, the Desert Inn uh, was a mob place. It was torn down to make way for the Wynn and the Encore. Um, the Sands was a mob place. It was torn down for to make room for the Venetian. Uh, the Silver Slipper uh, was a mob place torn down to make room for the Mirage. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, was that tactic of giving jobs to guys that they had absolutely no business doing uh, a common tactic for the mob? Uh, kind of. Um, it, it, they, they always needed a front man. They always needed someone who could get the gaming license, right? Who could uh, be the face of the of the hotel. So the, probably the most famous example of this was uh, Wilbur Clark. Wilbur Clark, it was for, for years and years, the Desert Inn's proper name was Wilbur Clark's Desert Inn Hotel. And Wilbur Clark wa- was, in fact, the guy who, it's a very similar story, Wilbur Clark started building the, the Desert Inn in 1947, ran out of money, and in this time, in this case, he uh, sought the assistance of the Cleveland mob, basically, uh, in the form of Mo Dalitz and his partners, who came in with the money and finished the Desert Inn, which opened in 1950. But they kept Wilbur Clark as the front man, as if it were his casino. And he became kind of sort of, he was the guy who was interviewed by the press. He was the guy who was walking around the casino, talking to people. And for all intents and purposes, People thought he was the owner, uh, but in fact, uh, this Cleveland uh, group owned it. Right. So I guess, you know, one of the big questions that everybody always likes to ask and one of the big things that everybody kind of always throws out there is, was Vegas more honest when when the mob ran things? <laughs> well, let me answer that in a couple of ways. <clears throat> First of all, uh, people will ask me on an almost weekly basis, I'll get this question. Wasn't Las Vegas better when the mob ran it? Mm-hmm. And and my answer to that question, I'll answer your question too, but my answer to that question is there's really no way to, it's apples and oranges. It's, there's no way to compare because Las Vegas was so much smaller then. One of the people, one of the things people remember from that era was, well, they remember two things from that era. One uh, that they, if they were regulars at a hotel, they were typically greeted at the door as if by somebody who knew them. And it was a very familial, you know, uh, type of atmosphere in Las Vegas. It was a very small town, really. And it wasn't uh, uh, out of the question that the casino host or somebody there would know you and want to help you, you know, take care of you in some way. And one of the ways they took care of people was comping them uh, food, comping them shows and whatnot. And people love free stuff, right? So people remember free stuff and they remember those friendly greetings that they received at the hotel. Well, today we have 4,000, 5,000 room hotel casinos in a city of 2.2 million people. If I, I've been here for years, right? If I walk into Caesar's Palace, I could see a thousand people and I've never met. And there's no reason they would know me. There's no expectation that they would know me, right? So it's just too big, you know, for that. And for other locals also look back to those days and say, oh, there was less crime. And their their connection to that is they believe the mob suppressed the crime, right? That there was people were afraid to act up because the mob might, uh, you know, come after them. Um I, I'm also skeptical of that because it was such a small town. There's less crime in small towns than there are in big cities. It, Las Vegas did not have the urban urbanization that we see today. Um, I will say that um, things were cheaper then. Uh, everything was cheaper. One of the things that happens when corporations have taken over the casinos is that every section of the casino now, of the hotel, has to be revenue generating, right? So the restaurant has to make money. The gift shop has to make money. The the nightclub has to make money. The casino has to make money. In the past, when the mob ran things, they were doing so well in the casinos that ev- the casino that everything else was a loss leader. So the buffet was cheap. The uh, they comped a lot of shows. They didn't care so much about all that. They just wanted people to come in and gamble. 
Well, that that sort of uh, mindset has gone away, and now with corporate America running things, it's it's more expensive. There's no question about that. So then, when did that shift come in? When did things start moving away from the mob and and organized crime running things to uh, to to the corporations taking over? Um. It started um, in, a, in a small way. It started in the late 1960s. And this was with the arrival of Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, you know, the reclusive billionaire, uh, had recently had a windfall of half a billion dollars from selling TWA, the airline. And he needed to invest that money or pay a lot of taxes. So he moved to Las Vegas in 1966. He moved into the Desert Inn Hotel on the top floor, he rented the entire floor. And the thinking was that he was gonna be there for just a couple of weeks before he moved into a house or something like that. Well, he decided he took a liking to the Desert Inn and didn't wanna leave. This angered the uh, mob, by the way, the mob bosses who ran the Desert Inn, and they wanted him out. There were a bit of loggerheads about what to do because this Hughes had moved to Las Vegas in late November and he was still there going into the holidays and then what would become the extremely busy New Year's week when a lot of the high rollers come to town. And the Desert Inn wanted to use those rooms for their high rollers on the ninth floor, the top floor. And Hughes wasn't spending any money in the casino, and neither were any of his aides. They were all just living there. So it became uh, to the, got to the point where the Desert Inn was preparing to call the sheriff to come physically remove Hughes from the Desert Inn. At that point, Hughes and his right-hand man, Robert Mayhew, decided, you know what, the only solution to this is we're going to have to buy the Desert Inn Hotel. Oh, geez. <laughs> so they did. They paid a, a, a high number for it, $13.25 million, but they bought the Desert Inn in March of 1967. Now, when Hughes came to town, he wasn't planning to buy a bunch of casinos, but after he bought the Desert Inn, he kind of got the fever. And he decided he wanted to buy more casinos. So he ended up buying the, the Frontier. And then he bought the Sands. And he bought the Silver Slipper. And he bought the Castaways. And then he bought the Landmark. And um, in each case, he had basically bought out the mob. And so what you saw is Hughes, even though he wasn't a corporate, you know, it wasn't a corp, you know, corporate shareholder situation, he was very much a, a mainstream entrepreneur. And this started nudging the mob out of Las Vegas. And also because he was at that time still had a good reputation uh, with, even though he was weird, people still respected his opinions. He, the fact that he was investing in Las Vegas meant that other people might invest in Las Vegas as well. And you saw Kirk Kikorian start investing in Las Vegas. You saw other uh, Holiday Inn and other corporations starting to look at Las Vegas as a real possibility. So throughout the 70s and 80s, you slowly saw the mob get pushed out of the Las Vegas Strip. And it, part of it was economic. They wanted they had a payday when these corporations uh, wanted to buy. But there was also regulation and state gaming regulation, federal investigations that were really ramping up at that time and making it very difficult, and which is a, which is obviously exhibited in the movie Casino. Um as, uh, so the mob was pretty much out of Las Vegas by 1989, I would say. That's that's actually a lot earlier than I thought. For some reason, I had it in my head that it was more uh, into the 90s before things were, were totally on the up and up. Well, there were still, uh, you know, I will say, in the 90s, the Los Angeles mob decided they had an interest in Las Vegas, but they didn't have any involvement with the casinos at that point. They, were, uh, uh, they weren't in the casinos. They were in other rackets around town. But they weren't very successful. And ultimately, that whole thing fizzled out by the end of the 90s. But really, the, the corporations took, took a pretty firm hold on Las Vegas around 89, 90. And the mob was kind of out, out of there. Funny that it was it was essentially corporate America that, uh, that pushed the mob out of Las Vegas. Yeah. And, you know... Um, and the reason, I mean, one of the reasons for that was the, the mainstreaming of gambling, right? When the mob came to Las Vegas, even though gambling was legal here, uh, doesn't mean banks wanted to loan money to do it. It didn't mean that 
you know, uh, middle America was prepared to invest in casinos. A lot of shareholders would have objected to that. But later, uh, as as gambling became more mainstream, it became more logical for corporations to become involved in Las Vegas. And uh, so, yeah, they and, and corporations and have a lot more money than the mob. People, if you're going to build a $1 billion casino like the MGM Grand in 1993, you need a lot more money than the mob has. <laughs> and as much as the mob does well or did well uh, with its various schemes, it never had enough money to build something like that. And I guess it makes sense that as something becomes more mainstream or becomes legalized, there the mob involvement would start to to drop off as that becomes more more common. I mean, if you know, I, I and this is my my limited knowledge. You'd know more about this than me. Um, with bootlegging mm-hmm. through, you know, and the and prohibition, the mob was quite quite heavily involved in in that industry. Oh, absolutely, and and we we talk about that a lot in our mob museum. Um, the uh, prohibition was the best thing that ever happened to the mob. <laughs> it created, it turned street hoodlums into into millionaires because they were able to provide, they were able to serve the black market for booze, and uh, they did very well during prohibition, and uh, that was really what what really uh, matured the mob, if you will. And it also helped to expand its uh, its reach into other cities and and see this sort of national syndicate develop. All of this stuff is just this is also fascinating to me. I could talk about it for for hours, but I do want to talk about the Mob Museum. Um, always one of my favorite spots to to check out whenever I'm in town. I try to get there at the very least every every second trip that I'm in town, um, and it's always at the top of my list for for things to recommend or that I recommend to people when they ask, you know, what do I have to go see when I'm in Las Vegas? It's an absolutely amazing facility that you guys have. Well, thank you very much. You know, we're so proud of it. Um, You know, we're in a historic building. Uh, I mentioned Hoover Dam construction earlier, 1931. Well, the growth of Las Vegas because of Hoover Dam is what prompted the construction of our building, which is the first federal post office and courthouse in Las Vegas, and it opened in 1933. It's a three-story building with a basement, uh, which is unusual for Las Vegas to have a basement. But um, we, uh, uh, it, it was the federal courthouse. A lot of uh, historic things happened in that building, including a, a famous Senate hearing in 1950, where Senator Estes Kefauver was investigating organized crime in America, and he held one of his hearings here in Las Vegas in our courtroom. Um, It also then uh, uh, later became kind of obsolete. The federal government, uh, as Las Vegas was growing, federal government didn't need the building anymore. Ended up turning over the building to the city of Las Vegas in 2002. And there were two conditions. Uh, They were willing to sell the building to the city for $1 if the city did two things. One is they, they, preserved the historic uh, character of the building and, and uh, you know, kept it up. And the second thing was they needed to use it for some kind of a cultural use. You know, they couldn't turn it into a giant, you know, Trader Joe's or something. It, it, had, to, it had to be uh, something like a museum or a theater or something. So um, at that point, the mayor of Las Vegas was Oscar Goodman. And Oscar Goodman, uh, before he became the mayor, had been a defense attorney who had represented the mob. That was his, he was famous for this, infamous, and um, including uh, playing himself in the movie Casino uh, as the lawyer for Tony Spilatro and Lefty Rosenthal. And um, anyway, it was Oscar's idea to, let's do a, he said, we should have a museum about the mob, about the history of the mob in this building. And, you know, uh, as soon as he announced that, uh, that, and I shouldn't say immediately was accepted, but over time, people really embraced this idea and the museum opened in, in 2012. And I guess circling back on this a little bit, um, you mentioned that, you know, at the time, Mayor Goodman said, hey, let's let's do a museum to to talk about mob history in the city. Do people in Las Vegas embrace 
their mob history or 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 not so much because i i mean i personally i could see both sides of this you know it's a great question and and i'll I'll tell you i think it's been an evolution of that mindset because i mentioned that it took a while for uh oscar's idea to really take hold as when he came up with the idea for a museum about the mob there were people in town who didn't like this idea one of that one of the groups that didn't like it were the italian american residents who thought this is going to glorify the mafia and give the Italian American people a bad, uh, you know, besmirch them. Sure. Um, and the other uh, were people who didn't want to glorify the mob. They just felt like, you know, criminals should not be put on pedestals. So one of the uh, arguments that Oscar made, and one of the things that he did was to say, this is not about glorifying the mob. This is about telling an honest story. And if we tell the story honestly, we know who was involved in the building of Las Vegas. And we should not ignore that. Not only the building of Las Vegas, but all the things that happened all over the country. And frankly, the mob is uh, part of the fabric of American history. People that may not spend a lot of time learning about the mob in high school, you know, uh, history classes or even college. But, you know, there's no shortage of serious scholarly history that has been done on organized crimes a very prominent role in american life and so the over time uh, the argument for a very serious museum about this took hold the other piece of the puzzle was uh, oscar brought in a co-chair of the committee that was putting this museum together and her name was ellen knowlton um, Ellen was had just retired as the special agent in charge of the FBI office in Las Vegas. And what she did is she brought another level of credibility to the project because she's like, this is a story about organized crime, but it's also a story about how law enforcement responded to organized crime. In other words, how how law enforcement and the public really with the you know behind them, uh, you know, came to the rescue and push the mob out eventually. And so that's the way we've put together our museum. It's a very balanced story. And, you know, I think people have come to embrace that balanced story. As for Las Vegans in particular, um, I, I think there are some people who, who the very, I think there's a handful of people who don't like to talk about those old mob days uh, here, but uh, I've met very few people like that. I think most people, find that there's something appealing about Las Vegas's history that they like to hear about and they like to talk about. And they don't mind uh, knowing that their city has a little bit of a past, you know? Well, and, and I think it's important to to note and, and very interesting to note that this is not just an American story, right? It, it's, it's, uh, it's it's a, a global story. I mean, the the mob essentially, in some degree, started almost as soon as, you know, immigrants stepped off the boat at, at Ellis Island and started making their way across the country. These things started to, to happen to to some degree. And and the museum really does a great job of of hammering that point home. Well, absolutely. That is that is uh, uh, certainly our goal is to help people understand how organized crime started in America, how it grew, and then ultimately how it was mostly dismantled. And um, the origins are, are uh, fascinating, you know, uh, and they're very much a part of the American fabric because it wasn't, it, basically what happened is, you know, certain ethnic groups, Italians, uh, Irish, Eastern European Jews and Russian Jews came to the United States, when they came to the United States in large, large numbers, in the 1800s and early uh, 20th century, they were discriminated against. They were given the worst jobs. They were forced to move into ghettos, not just in New York, but all over the country, whether it was Philadelphia or Cleveland or Chicago or New Orleans or wherever, they were discriminated against. And it was very difficult. Now, of course, the, the thing, the proper thing to do, and many of them did, was to work hard and you know, keep your nose clean and, and eventually you'll be able to work your way out of poverty and your next generation will do better and better and better. 
But there were some people, of course, who decided to take a shortcut and organized crime was that was that shortcut. And they were able to kind of get ahead and move forward uh, on the back of, uh, you know, robbing people, stealing uh, um, extortion and all these bad things they were doing. Um, and then they ultimately really catapulted forward with uh, obviously with uh, prohibition. But um, yeah, that or charting that early history is one of my great joys. I like to try to figure out how things got started here. And you guys have got your hands on some some pretty incredible items and 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 artifacts. What are some of the more uh, unique artifacts that you guys have in the in the Mob Museum? Sure. So uh, the first one I always will mention is the uh, the wall. Um, what we call the wall, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre wall. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre was one of the really uh, dark moments in organized crime history. In, 19, in uh, February 14th, 1929, in Chicago, uh, there was a lot of uh, rivals battling for supremacy in the bootlegging trade. And you had Al Capone uh, on one side, and you had the Irish gangs on the other side. And even though Capone was the best known, he wasn't, did not have a monopoly on Chicago's uh, bootlegging. And ultimately he put together uh, a group of guys who uh, planned out a very elaborate uh, massacre, literally, of uh, a group of uh, the top guys from Bugs Moran's bootlegging gang on the north side of Chicago. So these uh, Capone hired uh, hitmen walk into a garage Clark Street, on Clark Street in, in North Chicago. They, two of them are wearing police uniforms, so they look like it's a police, you know, uh, a roustabout. Well, these guys are lined up against a brick wall, and seven of them, and that's when the police, these guys with these police uniforms, they aren't police, uh, whip out Tommy guns and start shooting, and they mow down these seven guys, um, against this wall. So this is a story that goes not only national, but international. People are sort of saying, okay, Chicago is the crime capital of the world. What a horrible, horrible thing we're seeing. Um, this was interesting because before the St. Valentine's Day massacre, a lot of the mob guys were celebrated because they were the ones providing the booze that everybody wanted, right? <laughs> right. But, the fact that it had become so violent uh, really kind of went it, it kind of went a step too far. And so long story short, the bricks that we have assembled in the museum are the bricks from that wall of that building where that shooting occurred. A man named George Patey, uh, an entrepreneur, uh, he when that building it was announced that that building was going down in 1967, he recognized the historic value of those bricks, and he acquired them during the during the demolition. He numbered them and lettered them so that he could the bricks would be could be recreated and the wall could be exactly as it was before. And for years, he he had these bricks on display in a nightclub in Vancouver, British Columbia. He had them at a bar in another location. And ultimately, after he died, the bricks went to his daughter. And his daughter, coincidentally, lived in Las Vegas. So she had these bricks. She got wind that the, uh, the a mob museum was being built in Las Vegas. She got in touch with the right people. And we acquired more than 300 bricks um, from that wall. And we have assembled that. Uh, reassemble that in the museum. So you can see the bricks. You can see some of the pock marks on the bricks showing where, you know, bullets hit the wall. So that's one of our artifacts we really like. We also have a very related set of artifacts, and that is we have the evidence from the crime scene of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. When I say we have the evidence, I mean we have the bullets that were removed from the bodies of the victims. And you might ask, how in the world does something like that become available? Um, here's how. The, um, uh, remember, I mentioned that the two of the guys who went in and committed the massacre were wearing police uniforms. So witnesses at the time were telling 
authorities that the police committed this atrocity. And so the police were, and of course, the Chicago police weren't that trustworthy at that time anyway. So they were not entrusted with the evidence from the crime scene. The coroner kept it. And then the coroner turned over this evidence to uh, uh, a guy named Calvin Goddard. And Calvin Goddard was a ballistics expert. This was at the very beginnings of ballistics testing. And Goddard is known as the father of ballistics. Well, he acquired all of this evidence so that he could try to figure out whether certain guns were used in the commission of the crime. It turned out the police never asked, back, asked for the, uh, the bullets back or any of the other evidence that was gathered from the scene. Goddard held on to it for years. Ultimately, it passed on to one of Goddard's assistants who passed it on to his brother, who uh, passed it on to his daughter, and then who then sold it to a collector. And we acquired the collection from this, this collector in southern Wisconsin. And uh, it's all verified. It's all real. And uh, uh, it's an amazing collection showing exactly what happened on that day. Wow. Just uh, incredible. Um, and, and I recently saw an article online. You guys just got your hands on a rather unique phone booth. <laughs> yes. Yes. Kind of a coup. We, uh, uh, another Chicago story, but a good one nonetheless. The, the headquarters for the Chicago Outfit in the early 20s, by which I, when I say the Chicago outfit, it was run at that time by a guy named Johnny Torrio. And Johnny Torrio's right-hand man was a guy named Al Capone. And they were building up the Chicago outfit, Chicago mob, uh, and their headquarters was a place called the Four Deuces Cafe, or the Four Deuces Club. And the Four Deuces was in the Vice District in, in Chicago, just south of the Loop. And um, this phone booth was in that building. It was inside that restaurant and, and bar. And we know that to be the case because when the uh, building was demolished, and this is a similar story to the Massacre Wall, right? When that building was demolished, a local entertainment uh, guy, a guy involved in entertainment in Chicago got wind of this, and he went in and he acquired the phone booth before they demolished the building. He kept that phone booth in his house for like 30 years. And upon his death, a collector acquired the phone booth. Um, he did some restoration to it, but then he ultimately um, sold it to us earlier this year. And we now have it on display down in the basement of the museum. And we've got a, a historic phone in there, a phone that it's not the phone that was in the Four Deuces at the time of Al Capone, but it's very similar. And uh, we've got a lot of information about the, the phone booth. You can go inside and take a picture. Um, it's a lot of fun. So, I mean, I'm hearing that a lot of this stuff that you guys get your hands on, you, you're getting it from people. It's being donated to you. It's stuff that they've had, you know, sitting around in a, in a basement or a garage, or they've inherited from someone. How much stuff do you think is, is floating around out there right now? You know, there are, there's a lot out there. And we get calls every single day from people who have things. Now, one of the challenges with artifacts, especially in this area of the mob, is being able to ver verify their authenticity. Right. So we get calls, probably three quarters of the calls that we get, people might have a sincere story about grandma kept this in her closet for, for decades. And we're like, oh, man, that's a great story. But once we do our research, we're not able to verify the story, right? We're not able to, what we call, establish the provenance of a particular object. So we don't always hit a home run with this, but every so often we're able to prove the provenance and we're able to bring an artifact in and put it on display. For example, small thing, but we have Bugsy Siegel's sunglasses on display in the museum. These were sunglasses that he owned. Um, and that he had left at his friend George Raff's house. Now, your older listeners will know George Raff was a pretty well-known actor who actually had mob connections, and he was in a lot of mob movies back in the 30s and 40s. Well, George Raff was Bugsy Siegel's good friend, and so when, when Siegel died, you know, the stuff that Siegel had left over at Raff's house, there were a number of items because uh, he'd stay there occasionally. Uh, where it ultimately went up for auction. 
but they were able to verify that they had come from George Raft's house and that George Raft had verified that these were the items that Bugsy left behind. So we, when we're able to establish a paper trail, some kind of evidence along the way, that helps a lot. And you guys have opened up some pretty cool uh, interactive exhibits as well in the last couple of years with the, uh, the crime lab mm-hmm. and the firearms training simulator. Absolutely. You know, the, uh, one of the things that the Mob Museum also does, we've been talking about history for the most part today, but we also are looking at contemporary crime and law enforcement issues. And so we have a crime lab in which we, folk, we give uh, guests the opportunity to learn about forensic science in a hands-on way. And, you know, we, we see forensic science being done on, you know, TV dramas all the time. And things happen awfully quickly and, and accurately on TV, but that isn't exactly how it works in real life. So what we try to do is we try to give people sort of the, how forensic science really works and uh, it's just as fascinating as it is on TV. And um, people really enjoy that experience. Um, and then we have, uh, the, as you said, the firearms training simulator. This is a, our, our, uh, we have an exhibit and then we have an experience. And, and both of them focus on the issue of police use of force. When to shoot, when not to shoot, how to defuse a situation, when have you gone too far, uh, and so forth. And um, when people get to go through the experience, they're, they're given a, a firearm, which has a laser pointer and a CO2 cartridge, and they actually go through a digital experience where they have to make a split-second decision about what to do. They do two of those, and then they have a live-action experience. So we have an employee of the museum doing something in a room, doing something suspicious, and you, as the police trainee, you need to handle this situation appropriately. Maybe you're supposed to shoot the guy. Maybe you're supposed to just talk to him and talk him down. Maybe you just are misinterpreting what's happening. So it's a really humbling experience for our guests and and exhilarating at the same time to, to feel what it's really like to be a police officer. And people come out of that, that firearms training simulator. All they want to do is talk. They want to talk about the issue. They want to talk about their experience and, and ultimately, they, they get a little insight into what it's like to be an officer and how difficult that is. And I'd imagine that when all is said and done, uh, they want to uh, calm their nerves a little bit. They want to uh, relax. They can head downstairs to the speakeasy. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, the, the, the big finale for our guests is now the basement. And I'd mentioned the basement earlier. That used to, That's where our offices used to be. And I had an office down there and everybody did. And um, when we wanted to grow the museum, we thought, okay, so we've run out of room. What are we going to do? Well, um, smarter people than I came up with the idea that we should move ourselves out of that basement and turn that into a prohibition era speakeasy and distillery. And in the speakeasy, so we have a speakeasy exhibit, if you will, lots of information on the walls, lots of things to learn and do. Um, but it also has a working bar in it. So it's a, it's a working bar, uh, but it's also an, uh, a, an exhibition of uh, prohibition history. And then adjacent to that, we have a distillery exhibit. So again, uh, information about you know, the, the making and delivery of booze during prohibition. But we also have an actual pot still. We're making moonshine in the basement of the Mob Museum. So it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing to think of a museum that has a bar in the basement and has a distillery, but that's what we've been doing for a year now. Yeah. I, I had the, uh, the pleasure of uh, checking out the speakeasy last year uh, with my best friend and his wife who had never been to Las Vegas before. So of course we, we had to take them to the mob museum and we finished the tour with a, a, a trip to the speakeasy and a little sample of moonshine. And, and, and I thought it added such a, a neat dimension to the museum visit. It was really cool. Well, thanks for saying so. The, uh, you know, the speakeasy uh, is, has become quite popular locally as well as with tourists. And so we have especially big crowds on Friday and Saturday nights when we have uh, prohibition era jazz, live jazz. And we, we're always trying to sort of maintain, it's not easy, <laughs> but we're trying to maintain the, the era, right? We want things to be authentic to the prohibition era. And so the music is authentic. 
the the movies and the videos that we play on the screens are are you know consistent with the the era. An example of this was just the other day we had a little party uh, for the Kentucky Derby, and of course Kentucky Derby was was running during Prohibition, and so it's a it's a legitimate uh, event to uh, to to mark in the in the speakeasy. But of course there was no television at that time, right? So you couldn't watch it on TV, but you could listen to it on the radio. So what we did is, and when we played the Kentucky Derby with audio only, and um, as my understanding is, for the most part, the guests were really, really liked that. They really liked the, the authenticity of that. So that's what we're always trying to do. And there's so many little touches that are thrown in that just add to the experience. I mean, everything from the, um, you know, the the hidden entrance to the secret knock to to how the beverages are brought out, which I'm not going to spoil for anyone. I want them to experience it for themselves. But all these these little touches just add to the experience of, of visiting the mob museum and visiting the speakeasy. Yes. And, and uh, uh, again, thank you for your uh, kind comments. We, we take great pride in, in the whole experience. And that's what we're trying uh, to do is that we don't want to be uh, like other places. We want to be unique. Um, and part of that being unique is, is being historically uh, accurate, if you will, or at least having everything that we do have some basis in history. And so we do a lot of research in my department uh, to ensure that we're telling accurate stories, that we're not, you know, promoting legends and myths. Um, and we also want to use that history to our advantage and come up with cool activities that we can do in the speakeasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so some of that plays out with the types of drinks that we offer, mixed drinks, as well as some of the uh, activities, you know, and, and entertainment that we have in the space. Well, again, as I say, um, the Mob Museum is always, you know, my it's always on the top of my to do list when I come to town, and it's it's always on the top of my list of recommendations for people who are going to Vegas. And when I often when I say, you know, you should go to the Mob Museum, people kind of, hmm, I don't know, no, you have absolutely got to go and check this place out to, to see it for yourself. And, and, and so I, I really, I just want to say thank you, Jeff, for, for taking the time to, uh, to chat with me about the mob museum today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about uh, my place of work. I, I enjoy doing it and uh, never gets, never gets old. And of course, if people want to find you guys online to interact with you, uh, get information about the mob museum and such, there's lots of different ways they can do that, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, the main, uh, the main place to go is themobmuseum.org. You know, we're a nonprofit organization. Um, so themobmuseum.org is our website. And there you can buy tickets. You can uh, learn about all the different facets of the museum. Um, you can call us, you know, whatever you want to do. Excellent, Jeff. Thank you again so, so much for uh, for taking the time to chat today. I, I really appreciate it, and uh, I know my listeners will as well. Thanks again. That pretty much wraps things up for this episode of the podcast. As always, if you've got feedback on the show or you've got Vegas-related questions and want help in planning your upcoming vacation with ideas on where to stay, where to eat, what shows to see, or what attractions to check out, feel free to reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas, or drop me an email direct at jeff at walkernewmedia.com. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the instant a new episode is uploaded. Also, be sure to head to the website for show archives and info on the Jeff Does Vegas patron program for access to exclusive patron-only content, including ad-free VIP editions of the show. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 22 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast, a Walker New Media production.